0: Okay, on the back of the bulletin, as you know, are announcements. But let me say a word about this um, before I highlight one of them. When we talk as staff about the church and what goes on in the back here, these are things that, here's how the metaphor I think of. What is the engine of DCC? What keeps it running? What are the important things? So we have people requesting, can you make this announcement, that announcement? No. We announce the things up front that we think are critical or core to what we're doing. And the one I want to call attention to, you can read them all, there's really good things on here. But um, halfway down, it says DCC Family Night, okay? Family Nights are the nights where we invest into our young families and our children. Uh, You don't have to be a young family to come to that. You're welcome to come. I've gone to several. They're fun. But isn't that worth investing into, our children and our young families? I told in the first service I was explaining to Mark and Stefan a metaphor that I used to help me understand where you fit as far as your age goes. It's a wave. So you have this wave, right? And here's the point of the wave. So way back down here on the back part of the wave is where all the older people are. So I highlighted Don Wolf, for example. Scott Price would fit in this category back here. Um, these are the guilty. Yeah, These are the people that are the wisdom is deep and they know nothing about culture. <laughs> the closer you get to the end of the wave, the front of it, the, the, the less wisdom you have because you have lived long enough to experience it, but the more you recognize culture. So when I'm way out here on the tip of it and I'm sitting with a 14-year-old, the things that they observe in their world tells me what's coming. And then I run back down to the people at this end and say, what do we do about it? How do we handle it? So that's how I think of the church, and so that's why I love hanging out with our middle schoolers and teenagers, because their observations, they don't know what, what to make sense of it, but their observations give me clear insight into their world. And then back here is where we find all of our staff and our elders and our older people who can say, how do we handle that? What do we do with it? So this is an opportunity to invest into that younger, younger generation. And so, it's fun. Consider coming to it. All right. Before we pray, you know, I was thinking this week about the Internet. The Internet uh, has done wonderful things. It's done some bad things, too, but it's done wonderful things to us. It's given us the ability in real time to see the world. We can see, hear about the riots in Haiti. Haiti because the poor people are tired of corruption. We can hear about the shootings in various parts of the world. In fact, it's so routine now, it's almost mundane to us. I don't want it to be that. We can hear about the natural disasters that occur where people die. We can hear about the ongoing arguments in politics in Washington. We can hear all that. And if we're not careful, what happens is, it tends to discourage us, doesn't it? Sometimes the news is so overwhelmingly bad. I know it's never going to happen in my lifetime, but I just wish for an editor that would say, today the school in Oakland, Oklahoma happened like normal and nobody died. And you know what? The middle schoolers all learned something. They're not going to advertise that, are they? They're going to tell us whatever sells. And so the tendency is for us to become discouraged. And I don't want us to do that because we serve the risen Lord Jesus. This is his creation. And when he said it was good, he meant that. And the good thing about God is that he knows what to do about all of it when we don't have to. We're asked to trust him, aren't we? and just pray for fellow believers around the world and what's going on. So I want to stop and pray, but I want to—I just wanted to kind of preempt it in saying, let's don't say what we see. Let's look and see where we find God. I've asked many people who are really frustrated with the politics in Washington, where, where do you see God at work? He's got to be doing something. He didn't ignore us. So let's pray. Father, we... <clears throat> We begin by saying, we are so grateful that you are God and we are not. Because we know you to be a loving God, as Jonah said, a righteous God. We know you to be a God that cares deeply about this world, loves this world. And so our world is tired, Lord. We confess that to you. It's tired, hurting several areas around the world of deep brokenness. We need you. We long for you to engage yourself even more with us and in us and through us, especially right here in our own county with our own people who are hurting. Thank you, Lord. Help us today as we begin the discussion on holiness and what that means. In your son's name, amen. I'd like to start by saying... Christmas Eve, for those of you that were here, we, do, we uh, designated the whole offering to the Benevolence Fund like we did last year. And uh, we raised around $9,000. Thank you. I love being part of a church that cares about our people and the people in our county. And um, I love having a Benevolence Fund that keeps somehow, by your generosity and grace, just keeps filling up so that we can help, keep helping people. Because there are a lot of people that need our help. So thank you for doing that. Today we're going to begin a series on holiness, and I've called it Holiness, a Heart Fully Devoted to God. And um, by the way, when I, when I develop a series, I don't sit down two weeks before and start thinking, huh, what am I going to talk about? That's not the way it works. That's not the way I'm wired. I'm always researching and reading and writing and in dialogue with people here and around the world. And, and so what I'm reading now will become a series a year from now. That's kind of the way it works, and so all through the series of the summer, when we looked at the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount, into the fall, all the way heading into Advent, um, I kept noticing um, some things. Every time I mentioned the Mosaic Law, my comments got feedback, and that means something to me when I keep when I start hearing a theme emerge, and. I've been doing a lot of reading and thinking and studying on the Mosaic Law and holiness and decided, let's spend some time. So heading up to Lent, we're going to spend time in the Old Testament dealing with what holiness actually looks like. And starting with Lent, we're going to move into the New Testament and look at what holiness looks like. And I'm going to start today, start this series with uh, a couple of quotes. One is by a man, A.W. Tozer. If you've never read Tozer, I would encourage you to do it. It's a man from an earlier generation. He's not alive now, but it's worth reading. It's one of the very first books i read as a Christian. I've read it many times. um, This is the one I keep in my library. The one I've read many times is in a different place. You can't have that one. And uh, this was written in 1948. The title of the book is The Pursuit of God, 1948. Now listen to his words in 1948 and think about our world today. The impulse to pursue God originates with God. Pause. Think about what that statement, what he just said. The impulse to pursue God originates with God. But the outworking of that impulse is our following hard after him. The whole transaction of religious conversion has been made mechanical and spiritless. Faith may now be exercised without a jar to the moral life or an embarrassment to our ego. We live in a world, in other words, where anything goes. That's just who I am. That's just my needs. That's what he's saying. This is 1948. Christ may be received without creating any special love for him in the soul of the receiver. The man is saved, but he's not hungry for God. In fact, he's not thirsty for God either. In fact, he is specifically taught to be satisfied and is encouraged to be content with little. 1948. Are you hungry and thirsty for God? I'm going to read a second quote by a modern scholar, John Oswalt. Old Testament scholar. I love his work. I've read a bunch of his stuff and know him. This is a book called Called to be Holy. If you're interested, I think we have them out there. You can get it. I'm going to be using this quite a bit through the series. Here's what he says. The fate of the Christian church in America and around the world. So the Christian church in America and around the world depends upon what the church does with the biblical doctrine of holiness. Holiness. When you hear the word holy, how do you think of it? What comes to mind? I was raised in a very legalistic home. I couldn't wait to get away from the church. Rules, regulations, got pretty angry and bitter and walked away from it. When I finally started dating a girl who was a true Christian, it still took me three years of just watching her family. Before I got drawn in, how do you think of holiness? How do you think of God? Do you think of God as a big killjoy in the sky? Just watching, oh, you shouldn't do that. Oh, don't step across that line. Oh, that's going to get you in trouble. Is that how you think of Him? Or do you think of Him as a one true living God who is loving and loves you deeply and has made you for joy? And shows grace and mercy every time you trip. Which side do you put God in? Where do you find that? Is holiness to you something to be avoided? Ah, oh, here we go again. Another, another sermon on how to live life. Another sermon on what I should be doing, just so I make sure I feel guilty because I'm not doing it. Is that how you think of it? Or do you think of it as an invitation? Invitation into a world that you're created for, because God made you that, to be in a relationship with Him. Do you think of it as an invitation into that relationship? Where you actually begin to experience the type of joy that you're made for, and that you all long for? In other words, do you see holiness as a gift from God? Because that's what it is. Our job is to figure that out. We're going to begin this series with 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13. Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at His coming. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do, for it is written, Be holy because I am holy. Okay, let me say just a few things about this to start this conversation on holiness. We can see some things pop out right away, Peter. First thing right off the bat, right off the bat, is Peter asserts a very strong continuity with the what we call what we call the Old Testament, more properly the Hebrew scriptures or the Jewish scriptures. There is the scriptures that were given to Israel. They're ours as well. I often refer to them as the Jewish scriptures. You're going to hear me use lots of language in this series. The Jewish, uh, the Mosaic Law, the Old Covenant. When I say the Old Testament, most of you automatically kind of blank that out. That was for them. No, 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 no. We're going to bring these things together. The Mosaic Law is just as relevant today as it was at the time it was given. Well, we have to learn how and why that's the case. So he, is, he brings these together by quoting Leviticus. See, it's still pertinent today. Leviticus several times says, Be holy because I am holy. And he quotes that. You've got to remember, when the authors of the New Testament started to write this, they didn't have the New Testament. They hadn't written it yet. All they had were the Jewish scriptures. And so their entire world was based on what they read in these Jewish scriptures, because that were they were, those, they were their scriptures. And so they quote the Old Testament all throughout their writings. And Peter does it right here. So the very first thing we learn is that there's a strong continuity between our faith as Christians and the faith of Israel that was described in the Old Testament. We are both to be holy. Another thing we learn is that holiness defines a way of behaving. It's a lifestyle. Be holy in all that you do. It's describing a way of life. Another thing we learn just from this is that it's determined and defined by the character of God. God is the one who defines what holiness looks like. For instance, John tells us God is love. You want to be holy? Learn to love. You know, as I said, learn to love because that's hard to do. Jesus loves people that are nice to you. It's really hard to love those who aren't. And so the question then becomes, is it true love? John says, if you love God but you hate your fellow citizens, uh, you're a liar. So you want to learn to be holy? Learn to love. There's just one example. Um, another thing we learn, all Christians are expected to live out this behavior. This is an imperative. Be holy in all you do. That's an imperative. Be holy. This is an optional. This is an expectation that God has given us. Another thing we learn is that it is a way of behavior that is very different and observable from all other people in the world, non-Christians. They can look at us and they can see. So I mentioned I started dating a girl who was a Christian. It took me three years of watching her family and being close before I finally said, they have something I don't have. They never pushed it up on me. They just welcomed me in as part of the family and I experienced and saw and observed something that I had not seen before and that was a magnet. And now we're getting to the very basic core of why this is important because we are to become a magnet to the world. We are to reflect the glory of the Lord. That's why. That's why holiness is important. So, in order to begin to understand this concept of holiness, I want to look at the ancient world. Because, uh, as you can imagine, we've done this many times, when you begin to look at the ancient world, you begin to see how God... When he steps into our world, does something very wonderful and different. In the ancient world, holiness was not conceived of the same way it is today. The holy, that concept in the ancient world, designated eternal, uh, elemental forces of nature, things that we would consider in a technical sense uh, taboo today or even superstitious. Um, it separated us from the divine powers, the gods. They were there and we are here and we don't want them here. So the cults the, that develop, the various cults, that's a technical term by the way, don't think of it the way it's used today, the cults are involved with the practices surrounding any temple. So the cultic practices and rituals that developed around the nation of Israel were all designed to separate the realm of the holy, the gods, with the contamination caused vain, that's us. We don't want the gods in our world. We don't want them in our world. They were a threat. The gods were a threat. You know, when Israel came out of Egypt, in fact, we're going to look at one of those passages in just a minute. When they came out of Egypt, uh, they were fundamentally Egyptian in their religious practices. They were. The gods were considered threatening. If you, uh, it's really interesting, I asked several of our high schoolers and middle schoolers, I often ask people in master's classes this question, our high schoolers and middle schoolers do a better job of answering it. (laughs) I asked them, okay, God did a wonderful thing. He took 70 people and he planted them right smack in the middle of Egypt because he wanted to grow them into a nation. So he put them right smack in in the middle of the only superpower of the ancient world, Egypt. They took care of them, they defended them, they fed them, and they hated them, so they never married. They gave them their own little spot on land. It's perfect. It's brilliant. You know. And God just sat back for over 400 years and said, all right, grow. Do your thing. And so they grew and, they grew, and they grew, and they grew, and they grew, and became very populous, right? Became a nation to the point that now they're enslaved. You know the story. God brought them out of Egypt. Okay, so God brings them out. He's got this nation, and they're slaves, They don't know anything about foreign policy, domestic policy, economic policy. They don't understand any of that. They know how to make bricks. That's all they know. And God brings them out. What's the first thing you would tell them? Would you tell them about creation? Why did God start with creation? One of our 14-year-olds just looked me straight in the eye and said, God wanted them to know who he was. The more educated you get, the longer it takes to answer that question. <laughs> it's brilliant. God wanted them to know who he was. That's right. Because our God is not some God to be afraid of. And in the ancient world, the gods were to be afraid of, they were threatening interestingly enough whereas the gods are rarely called holy their body parts are called holy so the gods are rarely called holy Uh, we have several of the ancient gods that are never even called holy but their body parts are that's to help us understand they're very different than we are Places pertaining to the realm of the gods was, was described as holy. That's still true today. So you're walking down the street in India or Nepal or wherever and you trip off the thing and you think, oh, I didn't break my leg. There must be a God here. So you set up a little altar to the God. When you walk down the streets in Hindu countries, guess what? There's gods everywhere. Altars everywhere to the gods. And then they're holy. And once you establish one, it literally takes an act of the federal government to move it. And so streets and housing developments form around these little altars, these little holy places. They have apparently just tripped over one of the 330 million gods. They're everywhere. That was in the ancient world, everywhere, still true today in Hindu countries. Holiness in the ancient world signified freedom From unwanted physical pollutants, that's us. That's holy, not us. Holiness became a barrier to keep the gods out. Humans couldn't be holy. Except if you're a priest. Because the priest was expected to merge the worlds between the divine world and the secular, the profane world, our world. So it's very prestigious to be a priest in the ancient nations. A lot of power with a priest because everybody thought they had the ear of the gods. But the core definition of holiness was stay out. We don't want you in our world. And finally... In the ancient literature, holiness is rarely connected to ethics. We just read First Peter. Be holy in all that you do. Not so in the ancient world. It really was considered only a barrier. It had nothing to do with the way we lived our lives at all. We don't want the gods involved. Gods weren't to be emulated. They were to be satisfied. Big difference. All of a sudden, we come into the Jewish scriptures, the Old Testament, and the word holiness, all of its cognate forms, occurs over 835 times. Unlike all the ancient literature. So this book has a lot to do with holiness. That's just the Old Testament. We get to the New Testament later. Over 835 times something. The concept of holiness is one of the key words that describes Our relationship with God. In the ancient world, it described the relationship. You're there, we're here. Let's put a barrier between us. We'll call those cultic practices and rituals. You stay out of that. And in the Old Testament, we have the opposite. We start bringing God into our world. It begins to describe our relationship with him. But the beginning point in understanding this concept of holiness is in 1 Samuel 2 in Hannah's song. And she says, only God is holy. That's the beginning point. Only God is holy. What that means is He is distinctly different from everything else in creation. There is nothing like Him, nothing to compare Him with, nothing to compare to Him. He is distinctly different from everything. That's the beginning point. Everyone and everything else can only partake of that holiness by divine designation. That's the only way. You declare something holy. While the people of God can be declared holy, they do not possess or generate holiness. That's a very important distinction. There's nothing inside of us, inherent to us, that is holy. Only God is holy. So, that presents a conundrum. How holy do you have to be to be in God's presence? How holy all are you? 87%? That's our elders, by the way. 62%, that's our staff and pastors. We're working our way to you folks. We're getting down to the... (laughs) How holy do you have to be? Nothing unholy will ever enter into God's presence. That means you have to be hundred percent holy. But there's nothing intrinsic to you that makes you holy or generates holiness. It's not possible. You're beginning to see some of the conundrums, and yet God commands His people to be holy. Leviticus 11, Leviticus 19. In the Old Testament, holiness is rarely applied to geographic areas. Not unlike, I mean, not like the rest of the world, the rest of the religions. This is holy. That's holy. That space is holy. That space is holy. This space is not so. The only time holiness is applied geographically is when God is present Himself. The burning bush. Remember the burning bush? When God appears, it's no longer dirt. It's now a holy place. It is a holy temple because God has appeared. The temple became holy not because they built it, It became holy because God dwelt in it. Very different than the ancient world. So God's people become holy to God. That's a distinction that we need to make. They become holy to God because they obey Him. Look at this passage in Exodus. Now, the story in Exodus, just to kind of give you the context, they're just starting the third month of being out of Egypt, and God has taken them to the base of Mount Sinai. They haven't met God yet. They saw the ten plagues. They've seen his power, but they haven't actually met him. And so the beginning of this passage is God said, I'm going to meet the people that I let out that I redeemed, I rescued. And so I'm going to introduce myself to him. This is what he says. Moses went up to God and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, this is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now think about the opposite. We don't want the gods to come to us picture was the gods would come to us and God reverses it I brought you to me now if you obey me fully hear that if you obey me fully and you keep my covenant the one he's about to give them what we now refer to as the mosaic covenant the mosaic law or the first covenant or the old covenant if you keep that covenant Then out of all the nations, you will be, you will be my treasured possession. No literature of the ancient world has this language. You will become my treasured possession. We are now being invited into God's presence through this concept of holiness. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. He's saying, I will make you that way if you obey me fully. A kingdom of priests. The moment I say that, you should look around and say, who are we priests on behalf of? The rest of the world. We're not better than the rest of the world. We have a mission in the rest of the world. Here's God, and he creates a kaleidoscope, a color group of ethnicities, and he chooses one to reach the rest. This is what he says to the one. I will make you a kingdom of priests on behalf of all these other nations. And I will make you a holy people. How did he make them a holy people? By giving them this covenant, the Mosaic law. Because this law was very different than the rest of the world. Very different. The Mosaic law was wonderful. The law made Israel holy. And what we mean by that is distinctly different. Different than the nations surrounding them. That's what it means. Now, you were probably taught in Sunday school as a little kid, what does is, what is holy mean? Set apart for a special purpose. Remember that? And so that actually developed within our own Western culture with the idea of spatial idea, separate. And so in the, uh, in the early religions that came to America, um, we shouldn't get drunk, so let's don't drink. Let's don't go to movies. Let's don't do those kinds of things. Let's separate ourselves But that's not really what the word means. The word at its core has the idea of being different, not to be separate from. God is distinctly different. That's what it means to be holy. And he lives within our profane world, our broken, fallen, sinful world, such that we do not transform God. God transforms us. And that was the purpose of the law, was to create that boundary so that The world would look at Israel and say, why are you different? Why are your marriages better than our marriages? Why do you show respect and dignity to each other that we've never even seen before? That's the purpose of the law. You see, the law itself, I'm introducing the Mosaic law. We're going to spend several weeks in it. The law itself reveals a very strong, redemptive uh, character of God. And it's something that we believe should belong to our church. We should be redemptive. Let me give you one example. Hello, Victoria. (laughs) In Sequoia, great. I love kids. (laughs) All right, let me give you one example. If you look at the way the ancient nations treated all the adults, let's say you, you break the law. Maybe you embezzle some money. Maybe you kill somebody. Maybe you do whatever. Okay, and so the, all the ancient laws gave you rules on how to treat them. And depending on whether you're in the Assyrian nation or the Egyptian nation or whatever, maybe a government official uses uh, government employees or resources for their own private gain. All that kind of stuff. Well, they had these things spelled out, and it was very common to to see this language. You can beat them 100 times with a rod, a baseball bat. Okay you can beat them 100 times and cause five open sores. If you're a government employee and you use government resources for your personal gain, it's 200 times. We should bring that law back. (laughs) 200 times and five open sores. Guess what? In none of the ancient world is there any limit placed on how many times a husband could beat a wife. Wow. Does that sound crazy? Okay, look at Deuteronomy 25. When people have a dispute, they are to take it to the court and the judges will decide the case, acquitting the innocent and condemning the guilty. If the guilty person deserves to be beaten, the judge shall make them lie down and have them flogged in his presence with the number of lashes the crime deserves. But the judge may not impose more than 40 lashes. Okay, pause. If all we did was read this verse, we're going to go, what? We'll go to jail for that today. Right? That's called abuse. How in the world could a redemptive God tell us it's okay to beat people up to 40 times? Well, several things are happening with this command. Number one is it's mitigating behaviors that are excessive in the ancient world. That's called redemption. We should not beat the you-know-what out of people. We just shouldn't do that. Okay, so first of all, is he's limiting it to 40 lashes. Second of all, is he's moving it from the realm of personal vendetta into the realm of the court system. So we can no longer seek personal vengeance. And thirdly, now he's matching the punishment with the crime. That's what's happening. But then there's a fourth thing that is even more redemptive. Look at the last sentence. If the guilty party is flogged more than those 40 times, your fellow Israelite will be degraded in your eyes. We have the first law in the history of the world that introduces human dignity. That's not present in the ancient law codes. You see how this is redemptive, the law? Every aspect of the law reflects this character of God when you study it. Now, we're not going to go through all 613 commands. Don't worry about that. I'm not going to bore you that way. Okay? First of all, we don't know how to answer the question of all 613. But where we do have information, this pattern is consistent. God is redemptive, and when he speaks, he's speaking to bring redemption to a very broken world. And the ancient world was superstitious and very broken. With very few limits that were considered reasonable. So, God is beginning to mitigate all of that, bring it together, and introduce human dignity in the middle of that. We're going to look more closely at that. So, what does this mean? Let's go back to 1 Peter. Just going to give you a couple of thoughts. So, there's what we read in the beginning. We can now draw some preliminary conclusions about how Christianity began to understand holiness when they looked at the Old Testament. Remember, Peter is reflecting back on the Jewish scriptures when he made this writing. Whatever holiness means, it obviously includes a marked contrast to the life we lived before. When he talks about do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. So our life today should look different than what it looked like before we came to Christ. It's one of the things we see with holiness. The second thing is that Peter links grace, the grace of God, with this idea of holiness in this passage. Again, that wasn't part of the ancient world. This is the grace of God. This is a gift. Holiness is a gift that God bestows on you and he invites you He invites you into His world. He invites you to become His holy people. This is a gift. This is what you're created for. So, as we get into the series, we're going to be talking about this way of living, whatever this is. And we're going to find all those answers, believe it or not, in the Old Testament. That's where we're going to find them. I have a water bottle here. And just like in the Old Testament, I'm going to declare that it's holy. What changes about it? Does material change? How about the content of the water? Only one thing changes its purpose. When God invites us into a holy relationship that's based on the way we live our lives, we become different. Our purpose begins to change. And you know what that purpose is? To reflect the glory of Lord, of the Lord, to a very broken world. That's what it means to be holy. You notice Peter didn't say, Become holy. That's not even possible. Peter said, Be holy. Live out what has already happened to you. Stop conforming to these evil desires. So we're going to look at people like David and Moses and ask the question, how is it that Moses blasphemed God but he's called the most faithful man on the the earth? David commits adultery and does a lot of other things, nasty things, and yet he's called a man after God's own heart. How'd that happen? Because that relates to us as people today. We can be holy and still be idiots. That's possible. So are you ready for, the, ready for the journey on holiness? We're going to get all those answers right out of the Old Testament. Father, thank you. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your kindness. Uh, your kindness is beyond our experience and description, and we love you for it. Thank you for deciding to let us share, inviting us to share your holiness, to become more like you and therefore have such a greater message to the world around us because we become different as well as we transform into your image. Thank you for that in your son's name. Amen. God, ask the ushers to come and take the offering. By the way,